I love me a good story. I mean, it doesn't take much for me. If there's like a really good commercial, there's a possibility that I might be crying in less than 30 seconds. Because I love a good story. It just gets me. And, you know, like all of us, I mean, who doesn't love a good story, right? Well, the other day I was flipping through and wouldn't you know it, Undercover Boss comes on. And so I'm watching, watch just long enough to get suckered in, right? And it's the president of Roto-Rooter. So I'm like, okay, there's no way they can turn this into a profound story. But what you know it, like by the end, all the employees are crying. The boss, the president is crying. I'm, I have a few tears that I have to wipe away because over the course of, I don't even know how long that show is, maybe an hour, maybe 30 minutes. I think it's an hour. It seems like it's an hour. In an hour, they start to enter into the stories of these people's lives. And all of a sudden, a president, you know, he's high. He's got this huge company, and he's in charge. He enters in at a very sort of basic ground level. And these people, they have ordinary jobs, right? Roto-Rooter, can you get any more ordinary than that? And yet, the stories that kind of start to come to life, by the end, it's like the most profound experience that the boss has ever had. And he's like, wow, I have such amazing employees. So I thought on my New Year's sermon, I would go to my favorite story in the Bible. So you can turn to John chapter 21. I'm just going to stay right up front. This story will put undercover boss, it'll just, it'll be a much better story. You know, the world has to work sometimes to tell good stories, but the Bible does not have to work to tell good stories like the world does. So we're in John chapter 21. I want to set the scene of the story. If you go back to chapter 20 and look at verse 30, listen to this. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, period. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like the end of the story. I mean, look at this. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. We couldn't write them all down, but they did happen. And they're written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And in essence, the writer, the beloved disciple John, is sort of bringing a conclusion to the whole gospel story. But we're going to look at the story after the story in John chapter 21. Now, I did my research, and the original manuscripts have John chapter 21. So this is not an appendix. Um, It's better to think of it as an epilogue, the story after the big story. So let's read it together in John chapter 21, verse 1. I'll read it for us. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, 
Jesus stood on the shore, by the but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the sea, into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. First, I want us to make some observations about the story. I want us to think about the disciples first. Um, it says that they are by the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was a town on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Tiberias was probably the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. So they were in Galilee, which was sort of their home turf. And um, the Gospel of Luke calls the same lake the Lake of Gennesaret. So it had a few names, but it was a familiar place to them. Peter decides that he's going to go fish. Back to his old ways. There were seven disciples with them, so more than half the disciples were there. And they said, we're going with them. So they go fishing. They fish all night, and it's a likely story. They catch nothing. And then someone shows up on the shore and yells out, hey, put the net on the right side of the boat. I don't know about you, but if, I mean, if, if I were the disciples, I'd be like, who is this guy? But that's where the story gets interesting. It says the, the disciple, the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved, recognized him. We know that the beloved disciple was actually John who wrote this gospel. John recognizes him, and he turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. And immediately, Peter leaps and jumps into the sea and swims to his Lord. First, he puts his jacket on. And this, I mean, the best way to understand that, it was probably the most appropriate way for him to greet the Lord was to get dressed. <laughs> so John recognizes and Peter jumps. I love the, the picture that that creates. John's love has been called farsighted because he's able to recognize Jesus from a distance. I can imagine Peter being like, ah, I didn't even recognize his voice. But Peter jumps. Peter 
the disciple is the one that we know initiates. He's always initiating among the group. And right away, he initiates here. He jumps to, into the sea. With a love like John's and a faith like Peter's, I believe that there's nothing that can stop these two men or the disciples. So when they get to shore, the risen Lord has a fire burning with coals. And already he has bread and fish on it. And he says, bring your fish and I'll add it to the meal. And then he serves them a meal. It's really interesting. They, it says that they dare not ask who it was because they knew it was the Lord. So what do we make of the disciples as a group? I mean, did they go back to their old ways like Jesus rose from the dead? They've already seen him in Jerusalem, but now they're in Galilee. Have they, have they gone back home? Let's go back home. Let's go fishing. I mean, should we be down on them for that? Peter has been criticized. Maybe, maybe he's given up the mission. But the, the scriptures itself don't really give us, um, they, don't, they don't make it like it was a bad thing. In fact, Jesus helps them, right? He helps them catch like a huge take of fish, 153 And it's really interesting because Jesus told them to go to Galilee and that he would meet them there. So Galilee is over 60 miles north of Jerusalem. It's at least a two or three day walk. I mean, you could run it maybe in a day, like if you were an Ironman or something, but um, it was at least a two or three day walk and hike to Galilee. So they found themselves back at their old... uh, lakeside haunt, and in familiar territory. But I think we can say that the disciples were at least doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were sticking together. Jesus told them to stay together. And they were in Galilee, where they were supposed to be. And I think that we have this scene because Jesus wanted to create a picture in the disciples' minds of of himself cooking breakfast on the side of the shore. So I think the disciples are in the right place. But what about Jesus? What is his role in the story? Well, if you look, and if you happen to have a red letter Bible, that's kind of helpful if you look at what Jesus' words are. He only says four sentences in the whole story. He asks a question, and then he gives three commands. Friends, haven't you any fish? Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Come and have breakfast. I love what F.F. Bruce says about this passage. He says, there is something in Jesus' tone that inspires confidence, not criticism. The teaching here is not that... um, Jesus needs to go into a great dialogue. The teaching is the picture, the scene that he's created. He makes use of natural things, a fire burning on coals, fish and bread, a familiar scene that would have played itself out countless times in the lives of the disciples and in the way that they followed. Maybe it was here that Jesus had done a really profound teaching in the past. But now his words are simple. Come, have breakfast. 
So what's the point? I mean, why do we have this story? It's an epilogue. It's a story after the big story. Well, we see that in verse 14. If you look at John chapter 21, verse 14, I think this is the clearest, most direct reason we have this story. Because it says, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time Jesus was appeared, has appeared to his disciples since he's been raised from the dead. At some level, I think all we need to see here is Jesus, the, their risen Lord, cooking breakfast for them on the side of a beach. I mean, if all we see is the risen Lord cooking breakfast, I think that's enough. It's the risen Lord, Jesus, alive in the flesh, cooking breakfast for his beloved disciples. And I think that this story demonstrates one of the sweetest pictures that we have of the risen Lord in the flesh. Because it's real. Like, we can all imagine ourselves there. Early people would criticize the resurrection as like a figment of imagination. But Jesus was not a vision. The risen Jesus was not a vision. He was not a hallucination. He was alive in the flesh. His spiritual resurrection was also a physical one in the body. And I think that's why we have this story. Because it it reminds us that Jesus rose from the dead. And though the scene is a beautiful one, I think there's also a really interesting thing we can learn if we look at Peter's life. Peter um, was in the ship, and like I said, he didn't first recognize Jesus. But once he heard, he jumped in. And I know that Peter, and we know from Scripture that Peter would have been going back to an earlier time in his relationship with the Lord. Turn back to Luke chapter 5. I want to read this for us. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, the gospel of Luke says that they were at the lake of Gennesaret, which is the same, the Sea of Galilee. Listen to how this story unfolds. I know you can do the math on this, so just do the math in your head when, you, when I read it. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were fishing who were fishing their nets, or washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. 
So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. I think when Peter found himself fishing again with his disciples, or with his brothers, the Lord's disciples, and I have to imagine there was that place in the boat when everything clicked for him, and he just was like, ah, the Lord's taking me back. And he's reminding me of my call to follow. And that's what this story is. Jesus very intentionally takes Peter back to an earlier time in his life when he was first called to be a disciple. The first was by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter leaves all and follows Jesus at his word. The second is like it. The risen Lord finds them back at their old trade. And once again, Jesus' message is, follow me. In fact, we know this if you go back to John chapter 21 and look at verse 15. Right after the breakfast, Jesus says this to Simon Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? He would go on to ask that question three times and give Peter, the charge to feed the sheep of Jesus. But what you may not know and may not realize is that next Jesus would tell Peter the kind of death that he would die because he's following Christ. And then he would use those familiar words. Look at verse 19. The Lord said to him, follow me. We've been reading a book called The Cost of Discipleship as a staff, and it's a really challenging book to work through. Um, It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I want to encourage you to check it out if you're interested. Although the, the whole purpose of the book is to demonstrate the costly call of following after Christ, and then to explain what that looks like in our lives. But of uh, these two calls, I love what Bonhoeffer says about the first and same call at the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry with Peter. Of these two occasions, Bonhoeffer says, "Between, between the two calls lay a whole life of discipleship in the following of Christ. Between the two calls lay a whole life of discipleship. Jesus' message is the same. To Peter. Nothing has changed. Follow me. And the last thing I want us to see in this story is the personal love that Jesus has for his disciples. The love that we feel on the cross is sometimes even hard for us to look at. It's hard for us to understand, but we believe it on faith and we accept it on faith that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that he lived a perfect life as the Son of God and was God in the flesh, and yet he was fully human. He lived a perfect life and died the necessary death to overcome sin and death in all the world. And as we talked about earlier, his resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. And it's generally true, generally the same way in all of our hearts and lives. Now, it does require a cost on our part, Though it's free and it's full of grace, there's a cost. The cost is, are we willing to follow after Christ? 
And he's given this message to the disciples. And though uh, the cross is generally true for all of us, I think here on the beach we see the, um, the specific, caring, personal, and unique love that Jesus has for people and the way that it's expressed. I can imagine that as Jesus stoked the fire and the disciples couldn't even bring themselves to say, who, is, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. I can imagine that in their heads would start to go through the words of Jesus' teaching, what had just happened before his death. In John chapter 12 through John chapter 17, we have the great teaching of Jesus to his disciples. And Jesus opens up to them who he is, the kind of death that he would die, and the kind of call that he's calling them to. Words like this would be coming through their mind. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. you so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John chapter 13, verse 34. Or maybe they thought of this from John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Or John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. It's here that the love of the Lord, Savior, Jesus to these disciples was very personal in particular and felt. He didn't need to use a lot of words to teach because his love was expressing what he had taught before his death. I like to think of it this way. Jesus is oh so tenderly nailing his mission to the foreheads of the disciples. And it's, he's doing it in such a way that they'll remember because it's the stories that stick in life, right? I can tell you I had a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle or I can tell you that I was born in 1973 and the year I turned 16, I was given a car that was exactly the same age as I was at the time. This car happened to be light blue, not my first choice, and was generally curved in its shape, so much so that some people would say that it looked like a beetle. The engine was in the back, and the front hood, if you lifted, lifted it up, it would make a nice seat. If you took it to an apple orchard, you could sit there and eat apples in the front of your car. The car was light enough to be pushed so that when it wouldn't start, you could actually push it and pop the clutch. And it was a manual speed. It had four speeds. And if you wanted to find reverse, you'd have to know to kind of push down a little to the left, a little up, and maybe you'd find reverse. If you drove it when it was cold, you'd need to know to roll down the windows, reach around, and do your best to manually clean off the ice on the, on the windshield because it really had no defroster. You'd also know that just below the vinyl in the back seat were metal springs, and that the vinyl would tear off easily in strips. And over time, strip by strip, you'd be left with a back seat that was simply springs. And this is the most important. You'd also know that for your future wife to start dating you, you'd need to have your older sister give you her 1980 Datsun 200SX. 
then she might actually start to date you and she might actually become your wife later in life. I can tell you I had a 1973 Volkswagen Beetle or I can tell you a story. It's the stories that stick in life. And I believe that Jesus, all he was doing was creating a story that was worth telling. And I believe the disciples would tell this story over and over again. I mean, if I lived it, I would tell it. So it's really simple. I want to keep it simple today. The main reason that we have this story is to know that Jesus Christ rose bodily in the flesh. That's why the story exists. I think he also used it to reinstate the mission that Peter was called to, a mission that had not changed. The mission was still to follow Christ, even in his resurrection. And lastly, Jesus' love is specific. It's particular, it's personal, it's felt in personal ways. So I have a few questions for you to end. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead in the flesh, bodily? Because according to scripture, this is really what sets our faith apart. And ultimately, to be invited into his kingdom, it's a simple message that even children understand at times, that Jesus rose from the dead in the flesh and had victory over sin and death. But there's a question after that. Are you on a mission that's from him? And lastly, are you living in and displaying his love as you live out that mission? Now, those are three general questions that can generally be applied to all of us. But did you know that only about 8% of New Year's resolutions are kept? I read that this earlier this week. I know that they have no way of verifying this statistic because I don't know about you, but if I don't keep my New Year's resolution, that's between me and the Lord. <laughs> so I am not part of that statistic. But um, I think oftentimes we make these resolutions and they're either too general, like I'm going to be more disciplined in 2013, or they are not connected to a mission. Like, I'm just going to go to this box where these machines are, and you kind of run around, and then my body's going to be in shape. And there's no mission to that. It's not connected to taking your son on an Ironman adventure or hiking the Grand Canyon with someone you love. It's even the way that we sometimes get in shape lacks any sort of mission. So we give up. So I have three more specific questions that I want to leave us with today. And I feel that it's important that you think about these, not, and not necessarily answer them right now, but take time as you serve the Lord to answer these questions in your life. What is one of the specific missions that God has given you in his kingdom? What is one of the specific missions that God has given you in his kingdom, if you don't answer that for your life, you're missing out on a huge adventure and a huge blessing. And once you discover that mission that God has given you, how can you infuse radical love in a fresh way? Love wakes people up. Maybe you do need to make a meal for someone in a profound setting. Lastly, what is God's spirit teaching you 
or reminding you through this passage? What is God's spirit doing in your heart and in your life? We're gonna close in prayer, but I'm gonna ask you to stand as we have a closing prayer. Please pray with me. Father, we're so grateful that we can stand um, in the resurrection, God, because you stood up to life first. God, I pray um, that you would give us faith, the amount of faith that we need to believe that Jesus, your son, Jesus Christ, rose in the flesh physically in such a way that he was able to make breakfast and share a meal with those he taught on a beachside. God, and I pray that through your personal love, God, that you would take us into that scene in profound ways in our own lives. God, we believe as a congregation and as individuals that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he is your perfect son, perfectly sufficient to bring us into your kingdom. God, but I pray that you would help us feel his love in personal ways that actually impacts and transforms the mission we're on to come and follow you. So God, I pray that you would do this in us, um, even this year that you would call our church to follow you in radical and profound ways, ways that make a difference in our families and in the people, in the lives of the people that we love and in the lives of the people that we don't even know. Because we want you to receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.